Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 144, Politics and Religion in Late Antiquity, Part 2, The Rise of Christianity and the Invention and Simultaneous Eclipse of Paganism. In this episode, Part 2 in our mini-series looking at the religious and the political in the late antique Roman world, we turn to Christianity. First of all, we want to revisit the process by which Christianity came to separate itself from its cultural matrix, late Second Temple Judaism, first discussed back in episode 64 on the enigma of early Christianity. We'll then turn to how Christians distinguish themselves from pagans. And here we need to discuss two major points. Firstly, how this related to Roman state power, which was, of course, run along traditional Mediterranean religious lines with a long-standing policy of inviting on board any gods who could be persuaded to support Rome's ambitions. And secondly, how this approach came to be rebranded as paganism by Christians. So we're going to have a little excursus on the the whole idea of pagan. Uh, Finally, we want to dive into some hardcore political history, just enough to give some important names and dates and sketch the very basics of the historical processes by which the polytheist Roman state became, in one of history's impossible turns, the first Christian empire. And in the process, hopefully we'll see some of the reasons why what seems impossible wasn't really impossible. So here is a statement, gentle listener. The change to Christian modes of thinking took place gradually, more or less in line with the advance of late antique modes of thought throughout the Mediterranean region more generally. So, did that sentence make sense? If not, please go back and listen to or re-listen to our rather dry episode 95, where we introduced the concept of late antiquity and talked about some of the major social forces typical of the era. If you're unfamiliar with the broad-scale changes going on in the Mediterranean from about the middle of the 3rd century, you need to have that stuff under your belt in order to understand this episode. Or, alternately, if you're just not into this political stuff, this context, this historical context stuff, you can just carry on, or even skip this episode and wait for the next one when we start to talk about esoteric Christians in the 3rd century. So, first of all, for those of you who are still with us, Jews, Christians, and Jewish Christians. When last we focused our attention on Christianity as a movement per se, way back in episode 64, we noted that the process by which it became something truly other than Judaism was a long and involved one, one that remains imperfectly understood, and one which never really has a kind of line in the sand you can draw and say, at this point, Christians are just Christians and not Jews anymore. On the one hand, already around the year 100 CE, we have that letter from Pliny, a local Roman governor, asking the emperor Trajan what he should do about the troublemakers calling themselves Christians in his province. We might have an even earlier appearance of Christians qua Christians if the stories about the Emperor Nero burning them alive at garden parties are true, but these stories are almost certainly not true. On the other hand, as we shall see below, at least some Christians, in quotes, 
as late as the 4th century, were, well, Jews. Here's the problem. Fundamentally, the Roman Empire was a ridiculously huge and disparate place. So when we discuss overall trends, there are always local exceptions. But I mean really egregious exceptions. (laughs) By the 3rd century, we can pretty much say that Christianity as a thing now exists, quite separate from Judaism. And we can even say that Christians see themselves as totally different from the Jews. And we even see a great deal of Christian anti-Semitism coming into being in various sources. That's the third century. Incidentally, this went both ways, of course. Acts uh, 2.46 in the Bible, that's the Acts of the Apostles. This tells us that the Jewish Christians were still attending the temple. But we have three references in the Gospel of John to Jews expelling Christians from the synagogue and other evidence, mostly from the Christian side, it must be said, of Jews cursing the Christians and so on. So we can be sure that this back and forth condemnation and othering was indeed going on from very early in the movement known as Christianity's history, even from the first century onwards, right? What we cannot be sure of at all is at what point it was going on everywhere, at what point it became typical or even almost universal. In the third century, Origen of Alexandria, whom we've covered in the podcast, is is quite anti-Semitic in his way. But here's the thing. He criticizes some of the Christian brethren for repeating in church on Sunday what they had learned the day before in the synagogue. So in other words, not only is he against the Jews, but he has a problem with Christians who are still Jews. As late as the 4th century, John Chrysostom, a great Christian orator, is still attacking Christians who stubbornly keep going to the synagogue. So, Jewish Christianity never ends in a definitive way in the historical record. It presumably just peters out. But even that never really happens. Basically, all we can do in terms of the Schwepp and its general goals in this episode is to point out that almost from the beginning of Christianity, there were Christians who wanted to deny any connection with Judaism, or like St. Paul, they wanted to engineer a new religious movement designed to leave Judaism behind or update Judaism based on the new truth of Christ's death and resurrection. Take your pick. And on the Jewish side, there were always Jews who were cool with these newfangled Jews and their attachment to this particular wisdom teacher called Jesus, while other Jews rejected their claims and sometimes even considered them the Jewish equivalent of heretics. The term is minim, and it develops quite a robust application in the rabbinic period, as the new Jewish consensus struggles to find its feet after the destruction of the temple. One of the ways you find your feet as a tradition that has kind of become unmoored is by defining yourself against the others, right? So that's a complex story from the beginning. But things are different by the end of the 3rd century. Now, Christians are a special group by pretty much everyone's agreement, right? Polytheists think they're Christians, Christians think they're Christians, Jews think they're Christians. But not all the Christians agree that they are not Jews. (laughs) Or maybe to make it less a question of anachronistic identity politics, let's say that we still have evidence for some Christians who are regularly going down to the synagogue and doing lots of other Jewish stuff, like circumcision, right? The story is very complex and has multiple groups of players, 
but we can discern a general trend whereby, by the beginning of the third century, Christianity has achieved a non-Jewish and sometimes even an anti-Jewish identity, both in the eyes of the Christians and of Jews, and in the eyes of the Roman state. So the reason we emphasize this messiness is partly just because these things tend to be a little bit oversimplified in non-academic discourse, and it's it's good to get this information out there. Like the birth of Christianity as a non-Jewish phenomenon takes place over centuries. So keep these messy realities in mind as we move forward. And don't be surprised when we discuss Jewish Christians in the third and even the fourth century. I mean, after all, there are still Jews for Jesus, right? So it never really dies out. And keeping this complexity in mind will make it easier to understand other messiness. Like, for example, the fact that the Nag Hammadi Library, the Egyptian treasure trove of ridiculously heretical texts by the standards of any mainstream Jews or Christians, A, dates from the 4th century, so a time when Christianity has officially taken over the empire, minus the three years of Julian's brief reign, B, indicates that all manner of the craziest varieties of Gnostic thought out there could seemingly coexist in a single library, alongside a bit of Hermetica, a section of Plato's Republic, and other odd gems, and C, may well have been the library of, wait for it, a Christian monastery. None of this would be possible if the Christian takeover that we shall be talking about in this episode was really what it wanted to be, that is, a thoroughgoing standardization of all Roman religious life along the one-ring-to-rule-them-all model. Things were and would remain very, very messy. Okay, so that's a little survey of the de-Jewishification process across Christianity in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, let's say. Um, Going over some ground we've gone over before and emphasizing the actual messiness of what went on. Now let's turn to Christians, pagans, and heretics. Now, what about pagans? This podcast doesn't really use the term pagan as a second-order term for discussing polytheist religion for one very good reason. The term paganos, it's a Latin word, and it means something in the late antique context like uh, hillbilly, or maybe the best translation is the American colloquial term hick, right? This was used by Latin-speaking Christians as a term of abuse for the more traditionally religious neighbors. This reflects the growth of Christianity, especially in urban centers of the empire. As Christians gradually came to have greater and greater numbers in cities, they looked to the countryside, saw the old rites and customs and shrines and temples still being frequented, and began to call those, in their eyes, backward and misguided people, began to call them hillbillies or hicks, implying not only that their religion was wrong, but that they were stupid. City folk and their superior ways, eh? It's an old story. In the Greek-speaking empire, of course, the general use term for polytheist was from roughly the 3rd century, simply Hellene, Greek, a usage which set up all kinds of complex cultural negotiations of its own, some of which we've talked about in the podcast. So in late antiquity, we have Christians struggling to define exactly what makes them Christian. 
And this process takes a long ass time, as we've just discussed. But as their confidence grows that they are indeed Christians and they kind of agree on what that means, they begin to formulate the other with increasing confidence as well. And one expression of that process is the birth of the idea of the pagans. Now, the two most important external others to early Christianity, as it were, others against which Christians could define themselves, were the Jews, as we've just touched on, and the Hellenes or Pagani. So, if you're a Christian, what are you? Well, one thing you're damn sure not is a Jew or a pagan. Now, let's take a brief detour while we're talking about paganism and talk about modern paganism, uh, which is a part of the broad spectrum of what you might call modern Western esoteric uh, religious movements. Most modern neo-pagans are unaware of this early polemical origin of the term pagan, I think, at least anecdotally. And indeed, the tables have now been turned, right? In most countries where neo-pagans are to be found, they're overwhelmingly based again, on my anecdotal understanding, from urban backgrounds. While if you venture into the countryside, you're much more likely to find the religion being practiced to be some locally traditional form of Christianity. This is largely true from the Anglosphere, right across Europe, South America, and so on. If you run into some neo-pagans, chances are they're from the city. If you run into some old-fashioned Christians, chances are they're from the countryside, right? Pagan has come to be widely understood as simply meaning Worshipping a lot of gods instead of one god. Maybe with a side order of pre-Christian rootsy revival or back to nature or back to our uh, ancient roots, right? So that's one kind of semantic sphere of the term pagan in modern paganism. But those who are aware of the polemical origins of the term in the third century and beyond, because a lot of neo-pagans are university-educated scholars of religion and stuff like that, and they do know about this history— These folks still sometimes call themselves pagans. And I think this is a classic bit of reappropriation, like people calling themselves queer, for example, taking what used to be an insult and saying, no, we're going to adopt that and uh, run with it. There are lots of examples of this sort of uh, reappropriation of hostile insult terms as a kind of moniker of um, self-identification. Now, various other neo-pagan movements nowadays have recognized the polemical origins of the term pagan and reject it. So you then get people coining new names for what they do, like Wicca, or readopting an ancient name, often in a new context, like Asatru or Hellenismos, modern Norse and Greek neo-pagans, respectively. So these people are saying, pagan, that's a Christian term. We reject Christianity, so we're not going to use your term. We're going to come up with a, a somehow more authentic or better or more sensible term. So Hellenismos is indeed, I mean, it just means Greekness, but in the late antique context, it does come to mean follower of traditional Mediterranean religion, worshiper of, you know, names like Zeus and Hera and all the usual suspects. So all of these complex uh, adoptions of different terms are interesting and are an important playing out of late antique identity politics in modern esotericisms or alternative religions. None of this stuff is really relevant to the ancient world. However, we mention it here because it's interesting that a lot of this, um, the debates about who we are among modern groups known as neo-pagans does go back to the late antique uh, polemics one way or another. So in the podcast, 
we have been referring to ancient polytheist religions of antiquity either as traditional religions or as polytheist religions. Neither term is without its problems, but they are, I think, the best thing we have to be getting on with. Now, the term traditionally religious has been disappearing from the podcastular lexicon in recent episodes, as keen listeners may have noticed. Why is this? Why are we not talking about Mediterranean traditional religion so much and just going with polytheist? Well, gentle listener, in late antiquity, a lot of the polytheist religious thinkers we've been discussing, people like Plotinus, Porphyry, and especially Iamblichus, these people, while their thought world situates itself within the religious world of antiquity, we speak of God or gods interchangeably, we might uh, sprinkle a Hecate, Zeus, or Demeter into our philosophic discourse here and there and so on, or if we're Iamblichus, we might actually say, no, Zeus has a set metaphysical place in the system of reality, and so do all the traditional gods. While this is the context that they adopt, this is the thought world they're in, sometimes defined against the thought world of Christianity, as in the case of Porphyry, what they're doing is anything but traditional. Traditional polytheist religion in antiquity didn't have metaphysics. It didn't adopt complex explanatory frames. If anything... It was largely an orthopraxis, mostly based on sacrifice and initiatory rituals. And if, insofar as it's a way of thinking, it's a way of approaching the world in terms of myriad divine powers without fixed theological identities or definitions, right? That would be your traditional Mediterranean religion. It's about what you do, basically. It's about showing up for the sacrifice at the right time in the time-honored fashion, um, etc., etc. What these Platonists were doing was philosophical. And it was in no way traditional, unless we're talking about the elite intellectual tradition of Platonism. Now, when Julian comes on the scene in the mid-4th century and attempts to turn back the clock to the good old days of Greco-Roman Hellenism, in quotation marks, there is in fact nothing good old days-ish about his projected reformed polytheist cult. It's a kind of polytheist counter-Christianity in certain senses. And while it does involve an awful lot of sacrificing, uh, this is more, I would argue, due to the particularly bloody theurgic ideas of Iamblichus, which had a huge influence on Julian, rather than to a genuine reversion to old ways of doing things. In other words, I think it was impossible for an intellectual like Julian in late antiquity in in the fourth century to consider the question of religion without considering the question of metaphysics. And that is a big break from what you might really call traditional Mediterranean religion. I think it's safe to say that for polytheist intellectuals, uh, religion in late antiquity had evolved a long way from traditional religion as it had been practiced for the millennium or two leading up to our era, even if the practices stay the same, even if, for example, you're still calling for sacrifice. The whole um, idea of having an explanation for sacrifice, a metaphysical effect of sacrifice, which explains away what seems to be the crude quid pro quos between humans and gods. None of this is in traditional religion. So the same clearly goes for the polytheist new religious movements we've seen in the early imperial centuries, Mithraism, the Chaldean oracles, along with the ritual practices, which we infer lay behind the oracle text. And many of the rituals found in the Greek magical papyri And the Hermetica, all of these manifestations of new religious movements in the Greco-Roman world don't really reflect the traditional polytheism known to Homer and the Greek city-states. 
to the ancestors of the Romans or to the Near Eastern and Egyptian religious cults. In other words, late antique polytheism was, well, late antique. Indeed, the worldview expounded in many Hermetica is actually pretty monotheist in that it emphasizes one supreme god, and often Hermetica never refer to any other gods at all. So this opens up a question. What do we mean by monotheist in the first place? Since the Hermetists were somehow doing something quite different from the Jews and Christians. And wait a minute, aren't the late Platonists we've been covering in the podcast way more monotheist than Trinitarian Christians? Or, I don't know, the Hebrew scriptures with their occasional reference to multiple gods and henotheist approach to the supreme divinity? The time has come, gentle listeners, to thrash out this whole monotheism and polytheism thing in a coming episode which will hopefully deal with some of the methodological stuff for our listeners who are into that kind of thing, God willing. Or should that be God's willing? We'll come to answer that question. Um, For those of you who are not so interested in these uh, methodological questions, you can just skip that one. Anyway, back to our narrative. Christianity on the rise both invented a new category called paganism and also saw to it that that category was eventually pretty much wiped out in most of Europe from about the 7th century onward. There are notable exceptions like the Norse lands, the Baltic region, and so on, where people held on to their old gods for far longer. And of course, many ideas and practices of so-called paganism enter into mainstream Christianity. If you look at the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Rite, uh, pretty much everything they're doing in the church has some kind of analog with temple practice. But generally speaking, if you went anywhere in the 7th century Europe, you met mostly Christians, unless you met Jews, because the Jews are the the other of Christianity that has somehow managed to survive alongside Christianity, though not without difficulties, unlike the polytheists. There was, however, one other major class of Christian, other the enemy within or the heretic. Uh, We've talked about this the invention of heresy already in the podcast. We won't get into it now, but we should note that the third century and onward in Christianity is a time of extreme paranoia, at least at the level of the intellectuals who've left us heresiological literature, extreme paranoia about what you might call the intellectual purity of Christianity. And these attempts to purify Christianity will continue right through the Middle Ages again and again with things like Crusades, whose enemy was, well, another group of Christians. One thing we should mention here, though, is that sometimes a religious movement that we would consider, we as being modern scholars or, say, anthropologists, would consider just a separate movement, like Manichaeism, will be branded by Christians as a heresy rather than another religion. So when Christians come to talk about Islam, they will mostly refer to Islam not as a Christian heresy, but as simply a a devilish other religion. These are not heretics. These are just beyond the pale altogether. However, Manichaeism becomes a kind of um, classical heresy within Christianity. It's an extreme form of dualism within Christianity. And this Manichaean heresy, the idea of a Manichaean heresy, will arise again and again throughout the Middle Ages when you have extreme dualist forms of Christianity springing up, which they do again and again. So there's a kind of classicism whereby the first generations of the heresiological writers, people like Irenaeus, 
and others who wrote these uh, exposés of all the wrong forms of Christianity out there, their works become canonical. So later on, when Christians try to define this or that new enemy within, they'll go back to that literature and search the pages and say, aha, these people, these uh, bogomils, they are actually the Manichaean heresy rearing its head again. So the classicism of heresy is something to think about going forward in the podcast. Now then, let us turn to the move toward the Christian state and see if we can try to understand how this was possible. First of all, weren't Christians actively persecuted by the Romans? Well, there is the so-called martyrdom literature, gentle listener, written by Christians starting from the second or maybe the third century. This was a kind of propaganda to encourage Christians to be staunch in the face of adversity while also introducing a new kind of holy person, or what I judge to be a new, a new type of holy person. The person who's especially holy because their death is especially horrible. Indeed, there is sometimes quite a, for want of a better term, pornographic aspect to some of the martyrdom stories where the, um, the cruelties and tortures inflicted on the dying saint are described with uh, exquisite and, dare I say, lascivious detail. And while it has been widely agreed from the 19th century onward that there wasn't nearly as much martyrdom in the Roman Empire as the literature would suggest, it is undeniable that the Roman state intermittently actively killed Christians. Let's talk about this. We mentioned Nero and the human torches, which might have happened. But if Nero was indeed torching Christians, he was probably torching Jews as far as he was concerned. But if it did happen... We can probably also just put it down to the rather capricious appetites of the Emperor Nero. He was just an interesting character. But the first real persecution as such was the so-called Decian persecution. And it wasn't exactly a persecution of Christians per se. Between the years 249 and 251 or thereabouts, so right at the beginning of the period robustly known as late antiquity, the Emperor Decius in the middle, let us remember, of a very, very difficult time for the Roman state, put out a decree that everyone in the empire, and remember the Roman laws applying to everyone in the empire, never really applied to everyone in the empire. There were people on the fringes who literally never heard about these centralized diktats, like those guys uh, busily compiling the Nag Hammadi library in the 4th century Egyptian desert. If they got the memo about Orthodox Christianity, they definitely chose to ignore it. But okay, according to Decius, everyone in theory will need to sacrifice to the gods, burn incense, and pray for the well-being of the emperor. And they're going to have to do that in the presence of a magistrate and get a kind of certificate that they did it. The edict itself is lost. We don't have the exact wording from the emperor Decius, but we actually have found some of these certificates on papyri. So, you know, declaring that such and such and his family did the proper sacrifice and so forth for the health of the emperor. Now, note that Jews were specifically exempted from this mandate. And this goes back to what we were talking about last time, where the Jews, although they were not exactly best buddies with the Roman regime, had achieved a status of kind of exceptionalism within the Roman political framework. Everyone knew that the Jews would refuse to do this sort of sacrifice, and there was no point in provoking them. But Christians were not exempted. 
In a way, Christians couldn't be exempted because Roman law and precedent didn't actually recognize them as existing as such. There was no official category of Christianity recognized by the state at this stage. So the the Romans recognized the Jews as a religio licita. They had a kind of statutory existence. Christianity is this just kind of undefined social movement. So by the third century, everyone obviously knows about these Christians. There may have been something like six million Christians across the empire. This has been, you know, this is one scholarly estimate among many. We don't really know the numbers, but it's, you know, a lot of Christians. Everyone's heard of them. But they don't really exist on the law books, on the statute books. So was this persecution of Decius actually aimed at Christians as a means for weeding out the bad ones, the ones who would refuse to do the sacrifice? Eh, Scholars differ on how to interpret this. But Christians certainly saw it that way. And the Christians who decided to save their necks by going ahead and sacrificing to the gods instead of uh, claiming the rewards of blessed martyrdom Well, what to do with them became a problem once the persecution was over. Hardliners within the church wanted them forever expelled, right? They they wussed out, while others suggested penance or other forms of making good their weakness. Some bishops and other prominent figures were executed in this period, um, while a number of others went into hiding until it all blew over. So that was the first real centralized persecution of Christians by the Roman state, or to look at it another way, the first time that Christians ran afoul of what amounted to a political loyalty oath. And some of them refused to swear their loyalty. This, to the Roman government, was a pretty clear sign that these were bad people. What kind of person refuses to pray in the time-honored way for the health of the emperor? A seditious person, that's who, an enemy of the emperor. So that is the first real persecution of Christians, if you want to call it that. In the year 259, There's another persecution, uh, so-called the Valerian persecution, not as wide-reaching as the Decian by all accounts. And that's actually it until we get to the reign of Diocletian. And it, it is with two supremely important late antique emperors, Diocletian and Constantine, that the remainder of this episode will be dealing. These two men were political giants of late antiquity, and their careers are particularly significant for the story of the rise of Christianity to the imperial purple. Diocletian. We've discussed some basics of the crucial and long imperial career of Diocletian back in episode 95 on late antiquity, but we accidentally got him mixed up with the similar sounding Domitian a couple of times in that episode, so sorry about that. Uh, Basically, whenever we say Domitian in that episode 95, we really mean Diocletian. Gaius Aurelius Valerius Diocletianus was in some ways a typical late emperor. He came from the provinces, he rose through the ranks mainly because he was a really good soldier, Uh, then a really good general, and because he had a work ethic of stupidly uh, epic proportions. Diocletian's long reign from 284 to 305 is usually seen as marking the end of the third century crisis for scholars who believe in the third century crisis. But it wasn't a case of, whew, back to normal then. No, it was a case of, okay, the only way this thing is going to survive is through a massive reorganization of the entire empire around an all-consuming military machine, command and control centralized economic policies like price controls and currency reforms, which didn't really work, but he tried, the creation of a kind of proto-hereditary serfdom where if your dad is a carpenter, you have to be a carpenter and so on as a way of stabilizing the economy. 
and social relations, uh, another ambitious and horrible idea which didn't really work, and a bunch of other hardcore stuff. On the governmental level, Diocletian installed a professional bureaucracy on kind of Stalinist lines, but obviously with only 3rd to 4th century resources, so he couldn't really get to the level that Stalin did. And this bureaucracy did things like rationalize tax collection in ways that really annoyed everyone. And the reason you want to rationalize tax collection is in aid of the largest military machine the Roman Empire had ever seen. And with this mighty and efficient army, Diocletian was able to, for example, defeat the Sasanians in the year 299, sack their capital of Ctesiphon, and make a lasting and quite favorable peace treaty. So Persia sorted. Um, he also instituted a system called the Tetrarchy in the year 295, which didn't survive his personal involvement and was probably a bad idea in the first place, but might have been necessary to keep the ship of state afloat in the short term. So under the Tetrarchy, it's, it's basically an administrative redivision of imperial power among two main emperors, co-emperors, governing an eastern and western section of the empire, respectively. These are the Augusti, named after the first emperor, Augustus, and each of them has a subordinate co-emperor, his Caesar, his Caesar, named after the great Julius Caesar, who had almost been the first emperor. So the Caesars served in theory to solidify the succession as each Caesar was the heir apparent to his Augustus. Now, the Tetrarchy worked great until Diocletian retired and took his hand off the tiller, at which point, as you might imagine would happen, all hell broke loose as these different Augustian Caesars ran amok seeking preeminence, and yet more civil wars broke out. And the whole thing led to a long and nasty period until Constantine was able to beat back all rivals and become sole emperor again in the year 313. We're oversimplifying, but lovers of late antique civil war can check out other podcasts for the details. One of the reasons we have to mention these basics here is because they're very, very crucial for the outcome that Christianity ends up becoming the new imperial cult under Constantine. You'll see why in a minute. Now, here's a crucial part of our story. Diocletian instituted some serious persecutions. In March of 297, he declared that Manichaeans were to be severely crushed. The Manichaean religion came from Persia, and Rome was at war with Persia. Manichaean books and priests were to be burned. Ordinary rank-and-file members were to be executed summarily. And the only exception was the honestiores, the, the more posh uh, Roman aristocratic members among the Manichaean flock. These guys have a certain class immunity to summary execution, even under Diocletian, so they're just to be stripped of their possessions and enslaved. Dang. Now, in Diocletian's time, it's been estimated there's something like 6 million Christians in the empire. That's a lot of Christians. And maybe there were a lot more Christians than there were Manichaeans, such that such a truly brutal edict against Christians was impracticable. Because the order against the Manichaeans is basically an extermination order. I mean, it was never going to be an actual extermination because the Roman Empire didn't have the, the technical wherewithal to carry something like that out. But they did their damnedest. At any rate, in the year 303, so a few years later, after he's gone and sorted out the Sasanians and everything, Diocletian put out four consecutive edicts targeting Christians in one year. Books and churches are to be destroyed. Priests are to be killed. All Christians are to make a sacrifice 
as a kind of loyalty oath to the emperor. And if they don't do it, well, mm. the great persecution, as it is called, went on for some time, roughly until the Edict of Milan, as it is called, promulgated in 313 by Constantine, which officially instituted freedom of religious practice for all groups and returned seized property to Christians who'd been stripped. So that's a good uh, 10-year-long period in which Christians had to watch their backs at all times. But the great persecution was never carried out universally. It was most nasty under Galerius, one of the Caesars, of the Tetrarchy from 305 to 311, and he really seems to have hated Christians. And probably Galerius is the one who kind of spurred Diocletian on to begin the purge in the first place. And then after consulting the Oracle of Apollo, Diocletian agreed. But there's other parts of the empire where there seems to have been just no persecution at all, right? How severe was the great persecution really? Very severe if you were tortured, despoiled of your property, and then thrown to the lions. But how many Christians actually suffered this fate? We don't know. Our evidence is too patchy to say. Probably the answer would need to go by a region by region or even a town by town basis. One thing we can say for sure, though, the persecution was not a success in that it did not stamp out the enemy within. Uh, and it may have even made things worse, as in the coming anti-polytheist crackdown, which will go on for several hundred years. At the beginning of that, Christians who had had their goods seized or seen their, their relatives or friends killed they came back with a vengeance, a literal vengeance. Not very Christian, some might say, but very human. So that is our summary uh, discussion of the great persecution. Now we turn to Constantine. If things were simple in late anti-politics, we would simply say Constantine I was the next emperor after Diocletian. But they weren't, and Constantine had to deal with the kind of remains of the Tetrarchy. So Constantine was born in modern-day Serbia, but at the time part of the Roman Empire, of course. He was the son of Flavius Constantius, one of the Tetrarchs under Diocletian, right? So that's his connection to the Tetrarchy. He's the son of one of the Tetrarchs. Constantine was a military man serving with distinction all over the empire. He fought in Persia, he fought in Britain. After the death of Constantius, Constantine was acclaimed by his troops as Imperator, which is the typical way in which you become emperor, especially in these days of full-on military dictatorship. Long story short, he spent the next 18 years alternately ruling alongside his fellow tetrarchs, Maxentius and Licinius, and one by one fighting them until the death, until in 324 he, he found the empire once again with his sole emperor himself. Thank you, tetrarchy, you can go. Actually, the tetrarchy will kind of come back, but not really. So after the year 324, Christianity became the empire's preferred religion under Constantine. He makes it, more technically speaking, into the imperial cult. Now, what's going on here? We don't have time to cover the whole career of Constantine in anything like the detail it richly deserves, but let's make a few key points. One, although in the Christian imaginary, Constantine is Constantine the Great, an emperor who was converted to Christianity through a divine dispensation and thus the founder of the new world order, one God, one religion, one empire, with one emperor and his court mirroring God's rule in his heavenly imperial palace. This isn't actually how it went. We do think Constantine converted to Christianity in some way, but the details are key. For one thing, even after his so-called conversion, he still depicts himself 
with the solar radiate crown in imperial propaganda statuary, evoking the cult of Sol Invictus, the closest thing to a centralized imperial cult since the days of Aurelian in the 270s, and Constantine's family had been uh, devotees of Sol Invictus already. So he's already a Sol Invictus guy. Now he's arguably added Christianity to that mix, but he's not ditching Sol. He's simply saying Christianity is a solar cult, maybe. Anyway, note that Aurelian, like Constantine, had also become sole emperor after lengthy civil wars between rival claimants, and that the two emperors had possibly similar motives for trying to consolidate power through a strong single imperial cult, right? When Constantine founded his new city of Constantinople, the second Rome, Constantinople had a temple of Jupiter, Juno, and Minerva, the quintessentially Roman trio of divinities built on a prominent hill, sort of mirroring the Capitoline Hill in the old Rome. So this is, I guess, the essence of our first point about Constantine. He converts to Christianity, but that doesn't mean what you might think it meant. It certainly doesn't mean ditching the whole polytheist traditional Roman um, state tradition, nor indeed imagery, nor indeed statuary, nor indeed any of the things that Christian hardliners might have objected to. And when he founds his capital, he brings in none other than Sopater of Apamea, for it is he. Listeners may recall this disciple of Iamblichus from our storytime episode looking at Eunapius's Lives of the Sophists. He brings in Sopater. Why? Well, to found a city, you need a telestes, an initiate. And while we don't know exactly what was involved, probably one would guess some catarchic astrology to figure out when the best time, the most auspicious moment for officially founding the city would be, but maybe something even more arcane than that. At any rate, Constantine, Christian though he is by this point, was at least hedging his bets, trying to make sure that the new city was blessed by the older gods, just in case. So here's our first point. Constantine didn't inaugurate a Christian and Christian-only empire by any means. The traditions of Roman life and worship continued, but under different auspices. Christianity is now the imperial cult. Main point two. Constantine convened the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. This really is a kind of watershed moment, the first ever ecumenical council held under official imperial auspices, and the place where Trinitarian Christianity was kind of set up as a thing. The Council of Nicaea can be summarized as Constantine, having decided that Christianity would be the new and hopefully unifying imperial religion, he called 1,800 bishops, of whom about 300 were actually able to attend, and gave them a simple task. Thrash out between you the core doctrines of Christianity, please, so we can all agree on them. The bishops proceeded to argue, shout, and yes, even resort to ecclesiastical fisticuffs, It was, by all accounts, an unedifying spectacle, and one which probably left the pragmatic Constantine wishing he'd just stuck with Solenwictus. But uh, that is the Council of Nicaea. If you are a Catholic, you still recite the Nicene Creed as the periodic reaffirmation of your Catholicism. However, although it was officially a success, the presence of widespread fisticuffs in the council room tells us something very important. (laughs) Uh, Even if you can understand the Nicene Creed, and no one really can because it's a kind of importation of uh, 
ad hoc use of Platonist metaphysics to try to nail down exactly the relationship between Christ and God. And that's never going to be an easy thing to get your head around. Even if you can understand it, these bishops didn't all agree on it. So it was a kind of um, fake consensus that was pushed through, and that will come back to bite Christianity on the ass in the fourth century and beyond. So that's point three. Although the Council of Nicaea did give out the famous Nicene Creed, this was an attempt at a unanimous position statement, which was in fact not unanimous at all. In particular, the Bishop Arius, who thought that Christ, the Son of God, while preeminent in creation, was nevertheless subordinate to the Father. Arius and his followers would not back down, and this would lead to the so-called Arian controversy. Basically, throughout the 4th century to come, it was an open question whether Arian or Nicene Christology would become the orthodox position, and this question was sometimes decided on the battlefield. Now, just a side note, those of you who are wondering what, what relationship there might be between the idea of Arian Christianity and the idea of like the Arian peoples, this sort of um, Indo-European peoples in the old-fashioned way of speaking about them, there isn't one. It's just two words that sound the same. The Arian position is named after this bishop whose name is Arius and has nothing to do with Arian stuff. Nevertheless, the fact that Constantine convened a council to decide what was orthodox And once he managed to get some kind of agreement, and remember, this is a military bureaucrat trying to herd cats, trying to get bishops who are, you know, into all manner of speculation, get them to agree so he can just get on with running the empire. So he probably was saying, come on, guys, we're on the clock here. We need a creed. Once he managed that, then triumphantly came out and held up a piece of parchment with the Nicene Creed written on it. Okay, people, here's Christianity. This is what it is. This was an important moment in the history of Western thought, right? Church and state have now come together with long-term repercussions. Main point four, uh, Constantine's reign and successive legislations do start a trend in which polytheism will be gradually, by degrees, squeezed and then persecuted by unofficial Christian mobs at first, and then finally officially suppressed by the state. The emperor Justinian will close down the Platonist Academy at Athens in the year 529. And for many, this has been a kind of symbolic end of many things. Among them, antiquity, the pursuit of truth in an environment of free and open inquiry, and so forth. It wasn't really this, but it's worth mentioning here to give a time frame for the Christianization of the empire, right? Nicaea convenes in 325. Justinian closes the academy, which was a kind of hotbed of flagrant polytheism, just over 200 years later. So that's about how long it took for things to go from starting to look bad for polytheists, but who knows what the end result would be. You know, no doubt this Christian empire thing is going to blow over. Goes from that to Christianity is the only possible truth, and we're mopping up the remnants of classical polytheism wherever we find them, even if they are embodied in time-honored, culturally prestigious forms like Plato's Academy. Even Plato's Academy has to go in the middle of the 6th century. So a few other milestones on this uh, march toward totalitarianism. In the year 354, everyone in the empire is forbidden from offering sacrifices on pain of death. They still did so here and there, but it was now a capital crime. In the same year, all temples were officially closed, and the erecting or veneration of religious statuary was forbidden. 
In the year 357, Constantius II, one of Constantine's successors, went to Rome and in a very powerful piece of propagandist uh, theater, had the ancient statue of victory removed from the Senate House, which must have absolutely shocked and appalled uh, lovers of Roman history and tradition. The years 354 to 358 were a time of religious savagery, not from the state, but through, throughout society, with Christian mobs running amok in many parts of the empire, settling scores, trashing temples, not just trashing them, but actually nicking the roof tiles and using them to build their houses and, you know, turning them into churches and all this kind of stuff. Uh, killing people, stealing their stuff, raping people, and generally just getting away with all of it. So this wasn't state persecution. It was mob violence flourishing in a space of in a social space that the state allowed to exist without actively uh, fostering, without actively engaging with persecution itself. So this is the broad trend. Now, before we finish this episode, we might want to return to the question we asked at the end of the last episode. How the heck did this happen? How did the intensely persecuted minority religion of Christianity, with its kind of unsavory Jewish uh, connections in the eyes of many Romans, How did this suddenly gain the whip hand and take over the empire? Okay, in this episode, we've hopefully covered a few important things which allow us to nuance that question. Firstly, it wasn't sudden. It was a legal, social, political transformation occurring over centuries. Secondly, the move toward an increasingly intolerant, centralized imperial cult was already afoot in the Roman Empire, and in fact, couldn't be better expressed than in the reign of Diocletian who, of course, persecuted the Christians. So you could argue that the choice of Christianity as an imperial cult, while a surprising one, didn't come out of nowhere. The way had been paved firstly by the cult of the emperor for centuries, secondly by the cult of Sol Invictus more recently, and the Diocletianic reforms of the empire into an ultra-centralized, absolutist military dictatorship kind of demanded a centralized ideology of some sort. Maybe it didn't matter so much which ideology, as long as it functioned somehow as something around which the increasingly fragmented empire could rally. So Christianity as imperial cult, Christianity as cult of the emperor, right? And Constantine depicting himself in statuary as sol invictus stroke vicar of Christ seems to have done the trick for Constantine. Maybe we can add as a third major influence, the Sasanian counterexample, right? In the broad geopolitical picture of the day, especially in the Diocletianic period, when the Sasanians are, there's a serious war going on against the Sasanians. It might be that the Romans needed an imperial ideology of the new late antique kind, the kind with an official priesthood and a defined theology and body of scriptural canon, like the Sasanians had. So these are important points. The question still vexes us though, right? The fact is the question of how Christianity came to the imperial purple is, like the question of how the Western Empire came to collapse in the 5th century, one of those questions to which scholars give literally hundreds of different answers, (laughs) most of which are accurate in that they explain part of this complex story, but none of which can answer the question fully. We mustn't underestimate the role of luck, for example. If Constantine had not converted to Christianity, and 
anyway, we really don't know what it means to say that he converted to Christianity, right? Uh, and maybe his conversion was at least as much of a strategic gamble as a conversion experience. Had he decided to double down on solar cult instead, maybe the world would look very different today, just based on that one decision. The historical journey from Diocletianic persecution to Constantinian Christianization looks almost impossible on the face of it. But when we start to look at the details, it can be seen to make a lot more sense. And in the truly Schweppian spirit of irresponsible comparisons, let us consider the history of modern China for a moment in this context. As we know, China on paper is, at the time of this recording, ruled by the Communist Party of China. And from the 1940s until the 1970s, was the site of perhaps the most extreme social experiment in human history, in which the leaders of the nation, notably Mao Zedong, but others, attempted completely to remake an almost feudal peasant culture into a communist utopia through vast centrally organized social, economic, legal, and industrial reforms, culminating arguably in the Great Leap Forward and the Social Revolution, in which whole strata of society, whole classes of people were displaced, despoiled, sometimes killed. So in our comparison, that is our Diocletian reform era and great persecution, if you will, right? Then against all odds, one of the most hardline of the original communist leaders, Deng Xiaoping, takes over in the power vacuum left by Chairman Mao's death. Now, what does Deng do? He institutes massive capitalist-style market reforms. And Deng does all of this, this total about-face, in about 10 years. Deng's reforms, in our comparison, are the swerve of Constantine in what seems to be totally the opposite direction to everything which had been going on in the previous decades of radical social experimentation, right? In both cases, the story doesn't make sense on paper as I've just laid it out. But when we start to peek beneath the ideological narratives, the social or geopolitical realities on the ground shed more light on what happened, or at least let us see how what happened was possible. So as with Deng's market reforms, and the fact that they totally seem to contradict the communist ideology he's been serving for the last 30-40 years of his political struggle, and Constantine's turn to Christianity, which seems totally against the whole um, imperial ideology that he is serving, his own family history, the um, imperial uh, radical persecution of Christians that's happened in just the you know previous few decades. It seems like a total about face, but actually maybe isn't, right? We have to separate the life of the empire, the political life of the empire from these ideological constructs that we get when we read people like the Christian church fathers. And it just seems like... Uh, the only way to explain this is that God spoke directly to Constantine and, you know, Bob's your uncle. So hopefully this episode has helped you, gentle listener, see how the Christianization of the empire was possible. <laughs> Understand a little bit of the important historical circumstances that led to it happening and provided you with some helpful historical landmarks for the coming episodes of the podcast. Next time... We shall be discussing some of the dynamics of these pesky ideological terms, monotheism and polytheism, before moving on to discuss some esoteric trends in late antique Judaism and Christianity. Until then, be like the post-Nicene polytheists and stay 
increasingly esoteric. <laughs> 